Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't. Wizard. I never have, and I never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners. And I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast powered by FoxBet. I am your host, Todd Furman, joined, as always, by my steam colleague and co-host, a man we hope who ate breakfast before he came on the airwaves this morning, the one, the only Payne Insider. I did not. But that must be- have been bad because someone said something to me as well. I feel like I own the Laura bar only takes two bites, so I'm not sure how impactful it was Monday. Maybe you're but a someone, slow chewer. Yeah, maybe that's where it is. Well, you caught me. I was chewing and talking at the same time, but uh, someone close to me said something like, what the hell was that about? I was hungry. Todd took forever this morning. I had to get something to eat. Oh, it's always about me. Camp, look yourself in the mirror. It's always about the guy at the other end of the microphone. I see how it is. Oh, Jesus. Here we go. Here we to, go. You ready to talk some college football? As ready as I think I'll ever be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know there were a couple of games when we tried to narrow this down to a slate of five, and it is a relatively abbreviated slate with a couple power programs all having the week off, especially inside the top three. It got to be a little tricky, and apparently someone else isn't real happy with the games we chose either. And so we broke this down. Two games took us to the ACC. We'll, of course, get to the two Pac-12 games and the SEC showdown. But what better place, Payne, to start our weekly college football podcast than in a college football hotbed of Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where it's UNC, a two-point favorite, total in the game 47 as they welcome in Virginia, a battle to go a long way into shaping the Coastal Division and who will have the chance to get blown out by Clemson in the ACC championship. (laughs) It is the South's oldest rivalry getting renewed. I see it more of the toughest Smurf battle. When you look at these two teams between North Carolina and Virginia, do either of them get you brimming with excitement? Way to uh, polish that up. I I, hey, sometimes I don't know why we're talking about this game, but you said it's for first place. This is this is apparently for first place, so we're talking about it. It was a rough week trying to pick out five games, and fortunately, in my. Contract. It stated that uh, anytime Florida State's above 500, they're an option to talk about. So that'll be later in the show as well. So really only three good games this week. 
Well, I can take I can take breakfast when uh, you talk about Florida State. We're going to roll the ball out there. We're going to let you dribble around for about seven to ten minutes. I'm going to go eat my breakfast and uh, we'll get things sorted out there. But let's What's on the menu. Yeah, you know, maybe throw some eggs, a couple of uh, Kodiak cake pancakes with some blueberries in there. You got to mix things up a little bit. Kodiak cake pancakes. No clue. All right, well, I'll have to send you a little picture after, but that's not going to make for great podcast content. So North Carolina and Virginia, North Carolina off back-to-back, tough, hard-fought football games. They've played a number of close games this year. Virginia, of course, goes on the road, loses to Louisville. Starting quarterback Bryce Perkins banged up. Not quite sure where we want to start to try and assess an angle and an edge in this matchup. Well, that I think is the best part, right? You have to talk Bryce Perkins. Um, Tweaked his knee against Louisville, the same knee that we kind of mentioned earlier in the season that was giving him issues that I think problem initially started late in the fall camp. So the knee bothered him so much to the point where Virginia's offensive coordinator had to stop calling running plays for him last week. So that's something that you have to really take into account this week. Um, And all the issues just in general that we thought would be there for Virginia coming into the season, they've come true. You know, the offensive line's a mess um, and they can't pass protect. So you look, Perkins has been been pressured a ton. Virginia, 122nd standard down sack rate allowed. And so when you have a quarterback whose best attribute is his mobility that might not be overly mobile, that becomes a little bit of a problem. Um, If he's not able to help the ground game, then the offense is pretty inefficient at this point because (laughs) you look at the pass game, and, and something we expected with their top two receivers from last year moving on, there's just zero big playability. 117th in explosiveness, uh, 110th in explosive passing for Virginia's offense. So if Bryce Perkins, who is basically the entire offense, isn't 100%, it's, it's an issue. Um, when you look at what he's done not being as mobile with this injury, um, and you look at that offensive line and you look at not having the receivers that he had last year, there's been a lot of turnovers in the biggest games so far. You look at their three losses, eight turnovers in those games that have been a deciding factor. We talk about this all the time. Pressure is really what what dictates a turnover. Um, you're obviously going to have a few issues where it's just a bad pass to, but pressure is the leading candidate of a turnover. Um when I look at some of the things that UNC could potentially pose defensively, um, I think they're going to be able to hold their own a little bit. You know, it's not an elite defense. I know we projected them to be bottom third in the country in defensive efficiency coming into the season. They're overachieving right now, 59th in defensive efficiency. I think we've seen flashes of, you know, the coaching staff being really able to implement their new ideas. Um, You look at the UNC game against Clemson, held the Tigers to 5.4 yards per play. That is well below the national average. Uh, They held Clemson below the national average in explosiveness that game. So this isn't going to be a shock to their system. This isn't going to be some like step up in class. Um, And I think, you know, to put a kind of bow tie in this, knowing that Virginia hasn't shown an ability to pick up these big chunks of yardage on offense. I think it's important that UNC wins that first down battle, right? Pick up a couple negative plays on first or second down. And that's one thing that UNC's defense has done a decent job at. Top 45 in havoc rate. Um, If you can get Perkins, 
who, you know, again, is going to be at less than 100% in these second and third and long situations, his best attribute isn't throwing the ball. So I think that potentially, you know, bodes well for the Tar Heels defense here. When you look at a team like North Carolina, we'll get to their offensive side in just a second, knowing that they're a short favorite, and you look over their last five games, North Carolina, way back in late September, loses by three to Appalachian State, lose by one to Clemson, a most lopsided game they've played in recent weeks, a 16-point win at Georgia Tech, two-point game against Virginia Tech, three-point game at Duke. Does it worry you at all about how a team responds, even knowing what's at stake that they've been through the ringer so many times that fatigue sets in, or do you kind of throw that out of the equation when you handicap a game like this? Yeah, it's not anything that I'm actually factoring in here, but certainly different playing close ball games than uh, actually going out there and winning these ones. There's certainly been some games where they've needed to make a late play or two and haven't been able to do it, although early in the season, they did get some late game magic there to pull off the wins against South Carolina and Miami. But no, it's not for me. It's not anything that I'm worrying about. You have a true freshman quarterback. Obviously, he's going to go through this maturation process. Um, he has some limitations, but he has shown an ability to also hit big plays late in games early in the season. And hopefully, you know, he hits one or two big ones here because that's probably what it's going to take. Yeah, you mentioned close games. North Carolina, of course, beating Duke last weekend with a goal line stand 20-17. to 17. Yes. Don't get to the window laying three and a half points, but are able to get there outright. On the other side of the ball, Virginia will be down its team captain and defensive leader, Jordan Mack, for the first half after a targeting call that Bronco Mendenhall wasn't all that happy with. An already thin Virginia linebacking core gets even thinner over the first 30 minutes. And while Virginia ranks fourth nationally, paying with an average of four sacks per game, fifth with 87 tackles for a loss and 11th, uh, with an average f- just under five three and outs per game. Bronco Mendenhall has been pretty critical of this defense, saying when it matters the most, they haven't made plays they need to. And when you look at Sam Howell on the other side, arguably his worst performance during his freshman campaign against Duke, but got the win. How do we see North Carolina and the way they're going to elect to attack this Virginia defense? You outlined all the key points there, right? If you're just looking at down-to-down efficiency, Sam Howell has his work cut out for him going against Virginia's defense, right? They're seventh in passing success rate. Um, Virginia has shown that they can bully you at the point of attack as well. Um, 26% of runs that Virginia's defense has faced, they've stuffed at or behind the line of scrimmage. And so you look and it's like, yeah, UNC got the ground game going last week against Duke, but just on the season, they're outside the top 100 in rushing success rate. So they always haven't given... Ooh, Sam Howell, the help he's needed. Uh, So that's, you know, you you have to be able to lean a little bit on your ground game here. I'm not sure that's going to be the case. Um, You mentioned how he does pick up the win last week, thanks to the defense and that goal line stand. But also offensively, it was really explosive player bust because Howell was a disaster down to down. Completed 33% of his passes on standard downs, 38% of his total passes, Um, I would envision he's probably going to be under some pressure this week, right? Virginia's defense, top seven in both standard down and passing down sack rate. And, you know, because you look at North Carolina's offensive line outside the top 100 in pass protection on both standard down and passing down. So this is going to be a tough game for Sam Howell for sure. What I've seen, though, UNC does have a nice few nice receiving options. Uh, The way you get to Virginia's defense is attacking them with speed and space, 
right? For as good as that Virginia's defense has been down to down, they're 50th in explosive play defense. You can gash them a bit. They're not the most athletic defense. They're not the fastest defense. And I think you hit this perfectly. The one thing that's been really odd about the Virginia defense, they haven't shown an ability situationally to completely, you know, shut down an offense or be elite. Um, when opponents get into scoring range, Virginia's outside the top 60 in both green zone points per triple out and red zone touchdown percentage allowed. Um, they haven't finished games defensively. The metrics look great, but you, you hit on this perfectly. A few times this season, they've needed that crucial stop. They haven't been able to get it. USC's offense, or UNC's offense rather, um, they've been able to kind of come away with that big play when it's been needed most. So there's a real contrast there. Um, but that is a massive loss. I think you mentioned at the top with uh, Jordan Mack being out for the first half. I know uh, it was a pretty suspect targeting call there against Louisville. Yeah, Bronco pretty outspoken in his press conference about how the way that was handled, not the intent of the rule. It will admittedly say I didn't actually see it. Uh, to know exactly how they referenced it, but clearly life goes on and you have to make some adjustments for an already thin unit. They say familiarity breeds contempt, and when you look at the last 22 meetings between these two teams and obviously different iterations, underbetters have profited quite handsomely going 16-6, and six. Uh, and we'll see if this projects to be yet another low-scoring game where 24 points will be enough to win it. I can say with some level of conviction pain that 24 points won't be enough to win at the Coliseum this weekend, where Oregon goes on the road and lays four and a half. Uh, total on the game, 62 taking on USC. Those numbers, of course, courtesy of Fox Bet. And while as much as you hate Pac-12 football, we did get a little ACC in there because clearly that is a very powerful and prestigious league. Some impactful games in the Pac-12. And first meeting since 2016 between these good programs. good you can laugh at your own jokes. I mean, it's not. <laughs> my jokes aren't that good, so somebody's got to laugh at them. Mm. USC's seventh night game of 2019. The Trojans all-time 107-29-4 and four, uh, when you talk about night games at the Coliseum. When you look at these two teams, USC, a Pac-12 worst, minus six in turnover margin, and the third straight season, they haven't protected the football. How do you see this game playing out? An Oregon secondary slash defense that has suddenly seemed vulnerable and susceptible when they actually have to play a living, breathing passing attack. <laughs> It's uh, that's one of the key points. And I think there's probably three of them when you're looking at USC's offense against the Ducks defense. As good as Oregon's been on that side of the ball, um, I don't believe their metrics indicate what they truly are. Right. I, I think we can probably all agree that the Ducks are significantly better uh, on defense this season. Uh, but when you look three weeks ago, they were number one and overall defensive efficiency. And you look at who they've played over that time. It's been Washington, Washington State, two teams that have actually been able to execute a forward pass, all right? And you look at those two games and Washington State averaged 6.9 yards per play. That's 1.2 yards better than the national average. 53% of Wazoo's passes graded successful last week. That's 12% better than the national average in the game prior to that against Washington in you know, inclement weather and the Huskies were, you know, had a rash of injuries at receiver. Uh, they put up better numbers in the national average in yards per play passing success rate and explosive passing against Oregon. So that's something to really monitor here. I think the other thing is we kind of has to ask ourselves, you know, Ken Slovis and these three, you know, I would say they're all pros at this point take advantage of that leak in the Oregon secondary, you know, 
The Trojans right now ninth in passing success rate. The other thing that you can kind of point to a little bit here, you wonder if Oregon can kind of get back on track because there's a lot of familiarity here, right? They're going to be playing a similar style offense back-to-back weeks. If you remember, Wazoo last week, led by Mike Leach, USC's offense, led by offensive coordinator Graham Harrell, who was a Leach disciple, played for Leach at Texas Tech, coached under him at Wazoo. So maybe the familiarity there, back-to-back weeks, similar style, does help that Oregon secondary a little bit. Um, I would like to hear your thoughts maybe once I've I've finished here. Um, USC's offense, are they going to be able to have some sort of balance, right? Because the running back position is just absolutely beaten and battered. I love Slovis. I love the receivers. But I do think Oregon's defense is probably good enough where you're not going to be able to consistently have success if you're one-dimensional. So we've seen with step out, who was a huge factor in the Notre Dame game once they started getting him the ball more. Um, Carr, who's dealing with the hamstring injury, but I think they're talking about him trying to give it a go. We'll see. Um, Vave has been beat up. So I, I don't know what they are at the running back position. I can tell you whatever happened against Colorado wasn't good enough. And it's just a tall ask, I think, against a defense this good if it's just Slovis and the receivers. But it'll be interesting to hear your take on, on any of those three points. Yeah, you mentioned the running back position, and if those three guys are unavailable, you're talking about 182 carries, uh, nearly 1,000 yards, and nine touchdowns that USC would be without. Now, they've raved about Keenan Christian, whether it's predicated on necessity. This is still a kid that came in as a fifth-string running back. We know he's a burner in space and showed flashes against Arizona. Colorado, at this point right now, when I look at how they perform in the Pac-12, I almost throw out those data points because Mel Tucker has his hands full with what they're trying to do in Boulder. But you mentioned the fact that Oregon has that level of familiarity. But if we hit the rewind button and we look at the team the Ducks have struggled the most with over the last couple of years, Washington State has had their number. And last week, by no indication, was that one of the best Washington State teams we've seen. It wasn't Gardner Minshew operating the offense. It wasn't Luke Falk or any of the other guys that have had some success. And they were able to play pitch and catch. They were able to get receivers in space. USC, for me, Payne, has arguably not just the best receiving court in the Pac-12, but maybe the entire country. So this all has to fall on Harrell and how he can prepare Slovis. And I think that Utah game, and now I know he wasn't out there long, but they came up with a game plan that allowed them to attack the Utes secondary. And so when I look at this Oregon team, I'm not sure how good they are in the defensive backfield. If they're able to get pressure, it changes the dynamic of the game completely. But Brown, Vaughns, and Pittman, I mean, are an absolute nightmare. We do have that nice little side story, the Pittman brothers playing against each other. And so I try and figure out if USC has to even show some balance. Maybe you only run the ball 10 to 15 times to show the threat there. You hit one big play, all of a sudden you can spread it around the yard. And I think USC can have some success against this Oregon defense because we have questions about the secondary. We have questions about that defensive line. If they get worn down, can they bring pressure? And so for me, I definitely think USC's offense can have some success. Maybe not as much as what Oregon can do on the other side of the ball, which I think makes this game so fascinating and would also further support why you've seen this total bet up a little bit from 59 into the low 60s. I do like Gordon. You took a shot at Gordon. I think he has the potential. At least he's going to be drafted higher than both Luke Falk and Gardner mentioned. What, what do you think? Third third rounder for Gordon? I mean, I know there were a lot of NFL scouts at the game last yeah. weekend watching the telecast and uh, McShay do some of his breakdowns. Yeah, that's what they're saying. He's a day two guy now. So 
you know, you have the you have those guys. Clearly, it's not. I mean, Slovis. I don't know where he'll end up going. A lot to be decided for him. Receiving core and everything else. You have to think SC is going to have some success moving the football. Can they get enough stops on the other side of the ball? Because that SC defense, especially against the run, if what we saw from CJ Verdell is more of what we see here, man, this game feels like the first team to forty, maybe the one to get out of Dodge with a win. Yeah, on that side of the ball, you can talk about any and everything under the sun, but it really only. One thing matters, right? It's it's trench play. Can USC's defense be physical enough, tough enough to stop the ground and pound game of Oregon, who has one of the most talented offensive lines in the country? And you look, it's like not only is it just like uber talented up front, but that's the DNA of the offense. It's because of who the head coach is, right? Mario Cristobal, former offensive tackle. Uh, everywhere Cristobal is gone, he emphasizes this specific position. It's who he is. So when you look at the metrics, they jive with all the things, Dodd, that we have said and joked about over the years about West Coast football, Pac-12 football. USC, a little soft, 115th in the country in adjusted line yards defensively, 115th in the country in stuff rate. So that's a metric that gauges the percentage of runs you're stopping at or behind the line of scrimmage. Those two really indicate like you know, that you're consistently getting blown off the ball defensively in the trenches. Those two things usually correlate to how well you're going to stop the run. And sure enough, USC 113th in the country in rushing success rate allowed. The Trojans have allowed 48% of runs to grade successful. And when you remove sack yardage, which you should do, and for whatever reason, college football incorporates it in their rushing numbers. When you remove that, USC is allowing 5.6 yards per rush. It's 109th in the country. So that is the matchup here to really focus on. Um, So like somehow, you know, the Trojans front four is going to have to win like this one singular 60-minute sample size up front. I would think Clay Helton, Clancy Pendergrass, they're going to have to load the box here, right? Force Herbert and the Ducks offense to beat them through the air, beat them over the top. Um, we know there's a couple of weapons out that have been dinged up a little bit at that position. I have to force Herbert to beat me with those receivers. I think you mentioned CJ Verdell. Um, he is starting to take control of the running back unit. Last week, 135 yards after contact, broke 12 tackles. So he's really emerging there as the go-to guy. Uh, we're also going to have to keep a close eye on the USC injury report this week, especially defensively, right? Hufanga, Drake Jackson, Chris Steele, McLean Rector, uh, the young Samoan linebacker there from Bishop Gorman, whose name I'm not even going to try to attempt to say. <laughs> All those guys are banged up. Some of them are going to be missing. Some of them are going to be playing at less than 100%. That's important. The other key factor here, and I, I don't know what to make of it, but it's really interesting. 47 guys on the Oregon roster from the state of California. So I know Mario Cristobal uh, had a players meeting on Monday that said, we need to focus on this game. We're in the national championship potential run here. Um, I don't care about your friends and family. I don't want you hanging out with them in the lobby, doing all that stuff. Get the tickets. You only have this amount. Figure out who they're going to by the end of day Tuesday. We're not dealing with all this extra stuff. So if you can remove the distractions of friends and family being close by and you just want to put on a show for them, I think that probably bodes a little bit well for Oregon as well. Although I don't know how high this line is going to get in terms of like the actual value. There's probably some value on UNC USC. I just don't know if I love the matchup. Yeah. I think when you dig into the matchup further and seeing how Oregon has been able to change their game plan, it's a credit Uh, to the way that Marcus Arroyo has kind of gone out there. And we were extremely critical. And don't get me wrong, there's been plenty of weeks where I'm left scratching my... 
scratching my head. I will say last week, and you mentioned the missed tackles, one of the areas where Washington State has obviously struggled is tackling in space. Justin Herbert attempted seven passes in the first half in the first half of that football game, which is strange when you have an NFL caliber quarterback, but when Verdell gets on track, I'm interested to see how they elect to go out there and attack the USC defense because, as you mentioned, a laundry list of injuries, a team that hasn't been able to contain the edge. Do they use the run to set up the pass, or are we talking about, hey, this is a Justin Herbert game. We're going into hostile territory. We're going to try and take it to USC, not allow things to go the other way, and fall to the same fate that Utah did that fateful Friday back in September. I like passing the ball, though you definitely want to be balanced this week against that USC defense because they just haven't shown an ability to stop the run. That's for sure. But that is pretty laughable that he only threw seven times last week, and I get it. It was working. And again, it's it's the DNA of the team. If Mario Cristobal is going to be your head coach, he's going to want an elite O-line. He's going to want to be a run-first team regardless of who's at quarterback. Um, but, you know, I don't put that on Marcus Arroyo, honestly. <laughs> We shall see what happens here. Oregon at some shops, including Fox Bet, as much as 150 to 1 to win the national championship coming into this week. We'll see if the Pac-12 can control its own destiny and set up a matchup of a pair of 11-1 teams. But we will get to the other one that will play a major role as far as the Pac-12 South as well later on in the show. From the West Coast, though, to Northern Florida, where the annual showdown between Georgia and Florida will take place in Jacksonville. Fortunately, on this very podcast, we can still call it the world's largest outdoor cocktail party instead of other media outlets. You're not allowed to say that? Apparently not. It encourages binge drinking. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. You're going to school in Gainesville, Athens, or anywhere else in this country. Uh, Binge drinking is basically how you build an education. So... The fact that they won't let you call it that mind boggling. We're falling apart here, people. What can we say? Snowflakes taking over. Georgia, six and a half point favorite at Fox Bet. Total in this game, 46 pain. And when you look at the last five meetings, it hasn't been all that competitive. Uh, All of those meetings have been decided by 14 points or more. Georgia leads the all time series, 53 43, with two ties mixed in there as well. The team with the most rushing yards has 13 straight wins in the rivalry. The favorite has now covered four straight. And when we look at these two football games, we know Georgia being criticized for a power outage over their last couple games heading into the bye. Florida, a chance to heal up. And we know how disruptive this Gators defense can be. When you broke this game down, which matchup do you think will decide it or be more impactful? Georgia's offense against Florida's defense or on the other side, Florida's offense and the way they elect to attack the Bulldog defense? Well, you said something interesting that the team who wins the rushing battle is won 13 straight. Did I hear that correctly? Yep, that is correct. So, and last night we were kind of just shooting the shit and and you texted me asking, can Florida stop the run? And I think that's probably a good question. And I didn't know about the trend of 13 straight. So let's start there. And I think that is obviously the one big concern for the Gators defense, right? And we know that's how Georgia's offense wants to operate with Swift behind this elite O-line. Again, it's another O-line that you could probably say, and there goes the on screen again. Uh, it's a it's another offensive line that you could say is probably one of the best in college football. When you look at line yards, Georgia's O-line number one in the country. It's led to a 54% rushing success rate for Georgia, right? Seventh best in the country. If you remove sacks, and again, I say this all the time, if you're doing anything metrically, if you're someone who's trying to get into analytics, you're trying to download play-by-play data, you're trying to do all this stuff on your own, you have to be able to remove 
uh, sacks from from rushing numbers at the college football level. It sucks to do, but it distorts reality, so you have to do it. On run plays only, Florida's defense is allowed a hair more than five yards per carry. It's 81st in the country. And where Florida's defense has really struggled is when you run right at them. The last two games they faced LSU, South Carolina, um, and Florida's defense, and I'm going to say this nicely, has been bullied in the trenches at the point of attack. That's as nice as I can put it. If you look against LSU and you only gauge runs between the tackles, Florida's allowed 9.7 yards of carry on 22 attempts in that game. South Carolina, it was piss and rain that game. Only runs between the tackles. Gamecocks average 9.9 yards per rush on 14 attempts. So it's something that's going to be a real factor, obviously. God, that's that's crazy. Especially, you know, when you think about how we're trending, right? It's a pass-happy football era right now. So that's that's interesting that this game still is really decided by that segment of offense, you know? The positive, I think, for Florida's defense, they're going to get both defensive ends back, right? Grenard and Zaniga, they do a very good job crashing down against the run. Um, and from what I've seen so far out of Georgia, and we kind of knew this coming into the season, right? The receiver group in its current form and construction is relatively poor, right? The veteran guys with the most experience are are the least talented. The most talented receivers are, are kind of young and wet behind the ear. So I would expect Todd Grantham to probably have a, a extra guy or two in the box, right? Force Georgia's receivers to be good enough to consistently win one-on-one. We saw, right, the best defense that Georgia has faced to date with South Carolina. The Bulldogs receivers couldn't do that. They couldn't win consistently outside. And, and Fromm, while he wasn't great that game and he wasn't overly accurate, um, part of the reason he only completed 55% of his passes for 5.3 in attempt was because the Georgia receivers couldn't really get open. They couldn't create space, right? Fromm in that game, even worse, 50% completions on passing down. So I think that's the thing we're probably going to have to see here. If Georgia gets it going early, and I think Grantham will test it out, right? The front seven can stop the run without dedicating an extra guy. He'll go that route. But if they can't, Grantham will throw another guy or two in that box, force Fromm and those receivers to beat him. Yeah, you mentioned that Georgia's really lacked that big play potential. The game against Kentucky, for those folks that have broken this game down at home, keep in mind that should come with an asterisk why Georgia's passing numbers were so low in that spot. You talk about whether playing a major role, they obviously had to commit to the ground game. And part of the reason Eason, Eason, excuse me, Fromm wasn't able to throw for more than 50 yards in that contest. But you're spot on talking about how this Georgia receiving core just can't find separation. And that South Carolina game was essentially played in a phone booth in a 20-yard window. Uh, Fromm's receipt wasn't able to anticipate, couldn't get the receivers, throw them open. We'll see if anything like that has able to change, which I guess, uh, you know, begs the question on the other side of the ball, the Gators should get Kadarius Tony back. Uh, one of their bigger game breakers. He's been out for an extended period of time this season. Kyle Trask has stepped up and filled in admirably for Felipe Franks. But when you look at this Florida offense, they can't run the football. And it's been a real problem for them throughout the course of the season. When you match up against a Kirby Smart uh, very highly touted Georgia defense, and they can pin their ears back. How big a problem could that be for the Gators if they're not able to provide any balance? I don't know if you've been following this, but there's a little backstory here, which I think makes this battle a little more fun if you're unfamiliar. Kirby Smart and Dan Mullen used to be best of friends off the field. They have vacation homes on the same lake. The families would get together, yada, 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 all that good stuff. 
now not so much, right? After like a few years of of comments uh, that were snarky by Dan Mullen and they were publicly made uh, against the Georgia team, against Kirby Smart. So there's a little hostility there going on between the two. And I think when you look at who's dominated this matchup, it's been Kirby Smart's defenses against his buddy Dan Mullen. If you go back to when Mullen was at Mississippi State, Smart was at Alabama, there were seven matchups. Mullen's offense has averaged 8.6 points per game, less than 275 yards on average of total offense. And I think when I first kind of dug into this, read a little bit about it, I think most people are saying to themselves, well, you know, Alabama's defense and their talent versus Mississippi State's offense and their talent. Um, I agree. So I looked, the last two matchups, Mullen has faced Kirby Smart's Georgia defenses. Mullen's offense was held to three points two years ago. And then last season, Mullen's offense was held to 275 yards. So that's something to consider here. Now, all that said, I I do think, you know, Florida's offense has some success. You listen to some of the Georgia players this week. They've said the Gators offense is by far and away the toughest they've faced all season. They're right. You know, the average offensive efficiency rank of Georgia's opponents, 67th. They faced only one top 50 offense this season. And from what I've seen so far and what the metrics indicate, Georgia's, to me at least, is having some issues or the same ones from a season ago, right? There's a reason Kirby Smart brought in a new defensive coordinator. The same things are kind of showing their head, right? They don't create enough havoc. They're not creating enough negative plays. They're not getting to the quarterback as much as, you know, you would think a Kirby Smart defense should with this amount of talent. I think we're still waiting, right? And and you watch these games closer than I do, Todd. We're still waiting for like that dude who's just like next level, who's that five-star kid that they've been recruiting who just takes over games. We haven't really seen that yet. And, And the metrics are saying so. 80th in stuff rate for Georgia. 71st in Havoc rate, 69th in Sack rate. It's not good enough, especially when you play a schedule of offenses that Georgia's faced so far. Um, To me, when I look at the matchup, Georgia has to be able to shut down a poor Florida ground attack. Like there can't be any like semblance of balance here for Georgia's defense. Like they have to completely shut that out. If they don't, bat on them. Because as you alluded to at the top, Florida's having some issues running the ball with that offensive line. So if you can shut down the run, get pressure on Trask. I think that's going to help a secondary of Georgia, in my mind, that could be a little more vulnerable than many think, right? The metrics look great, Todd. You, you look across the board, Georgia's pass defense, top 15 in, in passing success rate allowed, um, in explosive pass defense. But you look at the schedule again, Georgia's average rank of offense face in terms of passing success, 85th in the country. Um you mentioned the like wind and rainstorm last week. Also, Lynn Bowden was the quarterback who was a wide receiver, <laughs> right? For a large portion of that game. Florida's just, a, you know, it's a different animal. They have one of the deepest receiving groups in the country. It's a steady core of guys. You you look like collectively just a 6% drop rate from Florida's receivers. And, and again, you mentioned this, arguably they get their most explosive weapon back this week with Kadarius Tony. So, The other thing that we've also seen is an uptick in passing. So if this is an issue for Georgia's defense, if they are vulnerable in the secondary, uh, we've seen Dan Mullen. He's increased his pass rate, especially on first down year over year. It's up 11%. So I think the Bulldogs secondary finally gets tested here a little bit. The key, though, when Florida does get into scoring position, they have to figure out a way to get seven. That seems 
obvious, right? But the best part of Georgia's defense so far, number one in points allowed per trip inside the 40, number one in red zone touchdown percentage allowed. So Florida, when they get into those key areas, they have to pick up seven. A big game uh, for all of our bet the board listeners, Payne, regardless of if we take a position laying the six and a half, taking the six and a half or establishing a total, a win for the Georgia Bulldogs would put them in the driver's seat to represent the SEC East in the conference championship. Uh, I know yourself, myself, and a lot of our listeners holding tickets on the dogs at three to one. So what do you think of Kirby Smart in big games, by the way? You know what? Um, Starts to tighten up a little bit. I want to give him credit, but I don't like the way that Georgia has been able to finish games. Um, When you look at their performances in the fourth quarter, some of the biggest games they've played in, I think once, okay, it happens, it's an accident. When you start to see it over and over again, you begin to worry about it becoming a trend. And there's a reason that Nick Saban's teams have been better equipped to execute in some of the biggest games that Georgia has played, whether it's an SEC championship or a national championship. You do have to give Georgia credit for how they performed against Oklahoma. Uh, but I'd like to see Jake Fromm come up with that clutch gene, make the big play late in the game. Should this game be much more competitive than what we've seen in this rivalry of late? Yeah, that's why I wanted to ask you. I know you watch these more than I do. Um, but in a couple of those big games that I have been able to watch, it just seems like they get uber conservative and they just clam up late. They almost have that old school mentality, and we yeah, talk about it all the time, and it's a cliche. <laughs> they uh, they play not to lose instead of going out there yes. and playing to win. And there are different ways to do it. It's not faking a punt from your own 35-yard line to try and change the momentum. It's not going on fourth and one in the middle of the third quarter from your 28, a la Cliff Kingsbury. But there's ways to trust a veteran quarterback, especially one that you think is going to be drafted at the next level, to make some of the big plays, to send a blitz here or there, and really come up with that disruptive momentum play that you need in the last five to seven minutes of a marquee national game that's going to have major ramifications. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what the metrics indicate, right? When we hear of how well Georgia has recruited the last few seasons, whether it's, you know, one through three basically is is their recruiting rankings under Kirby Smart. You would think with all that talent, again, we want to run as many plays as humanly possible because we have the talent advantage. The way he plays, it's like his team's at a talent disadvantage, right? He's at a talent deficient roster. That's not the case. So hopefully you would think that they start going a little more tempo, Um, running more plays, that would be the way I would think that they would increase their efficiency offensively. But what's really funny, when I just look at the core numbers again on an Excel sheet, uh, everyone's really pissed off about the offense. Everyone seems to love the defense. They're about the same. They're both both like roughly 10th across the board in all these efficiency metrics, both offensively and defensively. There really isn't much difference. Yeah, I think I think it's always tough. And one of the things that we saw Nick Saban take so long to adapt to when you have that defensive mentality and you're Kirby Smart as the head coach, your immediate thought is, hey, look, let's shorten the game. Let's take the burden off the defense. But you're exactly right. When you have the better players, you have the better athletes, you're bringing in five stars, extend the game. Don't run 65 plays, run 90 plays. All you're doing is playing into your opposition's hands and opening yourself up to more variance. The fewer plays you run in a particular football game. Florida's one, or at least one of Florida's biggest rivals, of course, the Florida State Seminoles. And you mentioned the Knowles at the top of the show. They're three and a half point favorites at Fox Bet. Total on the game, 46 and a half, as they welcome in in state rival Miami. The Hurricanes have won their last two meetings against Florida State, and they'll look to make it two straight wins in Tallahassee. The last time here, Florida State ended up on the wrong side of a 24 20 decision. Payne, Miami offensively has been downright pathetic 
in the course of ACC play, Virginia Tech game notwithstanding. Florida State starting to get their footing on the defensive side. I know there's a little bit of a quarterback controversy that I'm sure you can shed some light on, uh, but when you look at the way this number has moved, some support in the market initially for the Hurricanes as underdogs. I'm glad I do have that intel, and I didn't know you knew I knew it, which would have made for awkwardness. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So... I. The most important thing I think to mention with the Hurricanes offense is it would appear Jaron Williams is going to be the guy quarterback this week. It's early. Um, but Danny Eno's claim this is going to be a competition all week between Williams and Nikosha Perry. I don't see that being the case. And to this point, it's been, from what I'm told, Jaron Williams with the first team. And it's been pretty low key, but there was some discipline being enforced last week because Williams... Decided to skip Wednesday's practice. He wasn't in the mood. So, Man, were, I wish I had that luxury on this podcast. Pain, hey, I'm not in the mood. I'm not going to make it today. They were potentially talking about starting him in the Pittsburgh game, and that is why. Because he's, he did not. Because he skipped Wednesday's practice just for shits and giggles, apparently. Also, <laughs> uh, DJ Dallas, the Canes lead back, returned to practice yesterday. So that should help the offense a little bit. And... You know, I think if if you're a Hurricanes fan, you know how bad the Miami offense has been. It's been especially terrible on third downs, 120th in the country in success rate on third down. So I think when you look at the matchup, it's really important to try and bypass uh, third down as much as humanly possible. You have to win on early downs. Um, and that's where FSU's defense has struggled a little bit. 81st first down success rate, 105th second down success rate. Um, so they've struggled defensively. It's important that Miami wins those two downs so they can skip third. Um, to Florida State's credit, and you kind of hinted at this, since they've brought in Jim Levitt as an analyst, um, someone who Taggart actually wanted to hire initially when he came over here, uh, but that didn't happen because Levitt was had a blank check placed on his desk to stay at Oregon, and eventually just Levitt and Cristobal, that relationship just deteriorated pre-Levitt first three games FSU's defense was 93rd in overall efficiency they're up to 62nd now so the there has been improvement it's been pretty dramatic there's more energy I think the game plans are better a little more fundamentals shown Uh, there's been a lot fewer mistakes made by the Florida State defense Um, I think the key to this matchup though is bad on bad right who kind of rises to a level that's better than their current form. You know, can Florida State's defensive line with Marvin Wilson, who is uh, an NFL guy, potentially a day one guy, can Janarius Robinson um, take advantage of a Hurricanes offensive line that is horrific across the board, right? You look, Miami's offensive line, they've allowed opponents to stuff more than 24% of runs um, in known passing situations, Miami's offensive line, 126 in the country in sack rate allowed. The number on standard downs, 114th. So even like when the defense has to worry about them potentially running, Miami still can't protect the quarterback. The, I guess the benefit, I guess, for Miami here is Florida State isn't really good at any of those things. 105th and stuff right <laughs> defensively, you know, 100th uh, outside the top 100 and havoc rate. So it's it's really bad on bad here. Uh, which unit can kind of play above that current output will probably go a long way in determining who wins this game. 
Um, I think it's important, obviously, for Miami to finish their drives again. It, it sounds obvious, right? Get sevens instead of threes. But where FSU's defense has actually been really good this year um, is holding opponents when they get into the green and red zones. Right now, Florida State's defense, 13th in both points per trip inside the 40 and red zone touchdown scoring percentage allowed. So uh, they've really buckled down when opponents get into that money territory. Um, all in all, like I just, you know, I don't know what Miami's offense is. It's probably not very good. Uh, I know they got the win last week. Jaron Williams, obviously their best option at quarterback. He should have been starting basically every game this season. Not only is there the best option, but I think he's the best long-term plan as well, right? Coach Perry is what he is at this point. Um, and obviously, like Florida State week is always going to bring out your best. Oddly, though, like a lot of people were pleased with the result last week against Pittsburgh. And I think, you know, the reality is the Hurricanes came away with 16 total points they weren't very good, right? Like the average starting field position was their own 40. Miami only averaged three and a half yards per play. They were held to a 31% success rate. So this isn't a good Miami offense by any means. Let's see if the changes help with, you know, Jaron Williams. Let's see if because it's Florida State week, we get like a dialed in and focused week of practice, which leads to a better offensive output here. But Miami's offense isn't very good. No. Calling it not very good might be an understatement. That 16 to 12 game against Pittsburgh might have set football back about 50 years uh, and forced myself to watch it from start to finish. Didn't see a whole heck of a lot. Miami made plays when they needed to. They were given a short field early and ultimately able to pull off that outright upset. I did find it interesting. One of my former CBS colleagues uh, compared Jaron Williams to Peyton Manning and Tom oh. Brady and that they are not mobile guys, but they're but they are hard to sack that Jaron has that ability and the ability to deliver the ball accurately in the short passing game. Those comments coming from John Beeson, who apparently was not thrilled that Nikosi Perry was getting as much run as he was. He's On right, but si- that, that John Beeson, uh, Miami Hurricanes linebacker, that sounds like a little home cooking. There, there was a little home cooking and a little bit of optimism, there's no doubt, uh, in some of his comments <laughs> to 20, 24-7 sports. So take that with a grain of salt. On the other side, I think of the from ball, all aspects, right? Not just uh, performance-wise, but I would say stylistically <laughs> and uh, everything else. Yep, I'm uh, going to echo a lot of those same sentiments. When you look at the other side, Miami's defense, highly regarded coming into the season, in my opinion, hasn't lived up to those expectations. They should be able to get Michael Pinkney back in the fold. Fourth in the team with 38 tackles, seven and a half tackles for a loss. Missed the game against Pittsburgh. Well, but what I found interesting, Payne, aside from the quarterback questions that the Knowles have had, so much talk this week about Cam Akers this, Cam Akers that. He's our best playmaker. We need to get him the ball. We have to get him the touches. And Kendall Bryles pretty much saying, hey, we run Cam out of the wild acres or whatever the hell they want to call it these days. It eliminates one element in a cog in the machine. We get the ball to our playmaker and we go, hey, playmaker, make a play. Cam Akers, Florida State offense against the Miami defense. Can the Knowles offense get on track here? I don't know if you heard this or not or saw it, but uh, when Willie Taggart was asked the final question of his early week presser about who his starting quarterback would be against Miami, he joked and said came at Akers on, on his way out the door, and everyone was like, oh, is he joking or not? Um, hey, he was a high school quarterback, threw for over 8,000 yards in high school. He was, high school quarterback. Uh, Cam did line up at quarterback with, you know, the very talented kid on the board next to him for a few plays against Syracuse. It worked out well. Uh, I believe he threw three passes for 26 yards. I'm sure Bryles saw that in the Wake Forest game, all plays that included Cam Akers, Florida State averaged 1.1 yards more per play than on plays where Cam Akers wasn't involved. Now, 
jokes aside, my understanding is, and I don't think this has been made completely public yet, although you do a lot of reading as well, Alex Hornerbrook is going to get the start of quarterback. Have you seen that? Because that's what I'm hearing. I have not officially seen that, but if you read between the lines and some of the quotes that were out there, that was my insinuation. I was hoping that you had a greater inkling uh, on the folks that you talked to close to the Seminoles program. This is what I've been told, uh, that Bryles feels Alex has a better understanding of the offense, that that, Hornerbrook does a better job of diagnosing where the ball needs to go pre-snap. He gets it out quicker. He's more accurate. Um, Now, Hornerbrook does have a pea shooter for an arm, and he does make some mistakes when when, – you know, that arm can't really bail him out. But Blackman wasn't accurate enough as a deep passer to kind of fend him off. And I think that's why, you know, Bryles will end up choosing Hornerbrook this week ultimately, um, especially knowing the team that's across from you, knowing the man across from you, knowing you, who you're going to play, right? Like Manny Diaz is a guy who likes to blitz and send pressure, Todd, right? So when you look at Florida State's O-line, well improved, it's still a problem, right? Outside the top 100 in both front seven havoc rate allowed and sack rate allowed. So I think getting the ball out quickly and accurately probably is the top priority for Florida State this week. And when you compare Hornerbrook versus Blackman against the Blitz, Hornerbrook's completing 63% of his passes, Blackman just 54%. Uh, Hornerbrook is averaging uh, over 11 yards per pass attempt against the Blitz, Blackman less than five. Hornerbrook, four touchdowns, zero interceptions against the Blitz. Blackman, two touchdowns, two picks. So I think that's why we're probably going to see Hornerbrook initially start this game. Uh, If he finishes, you know, who knows in that scenario. Either way, you know, I think Browse is going to have to have his A game here. Akers and Terry. Terry needs to step up, man. He has been very disappointing this season, especially with a lot of key drops and big games and situations. I think Florida State probably wins the Wake Forest game, and I know it was raining, but Terry had a lot of key drops in that game. Um, so I think, again, Bryles has to have some, you know, ridiculous game plan, uh, a, a couple nice wrinkles. Akers and Terry are going to have to be stars. FSU's own line is probably going to have to be better than horrible. Um, and you have to hope that that Miami continues to be a horrific tackling football team. So maybe you pick up, you know, some some uh, crap yards that way, right? Break a few tackles. Fortunately, and I think you mentioned this, right? Michael Pinckney is back at linebacker. He should help potentially shore up some tackling issues there. But I think those are the keys for for Florida State's offense. If Akers is shut down, um, if Hornerbrook is struggling with pressure, uh, it's not going to bode very well for, for the Florida State offense. And we have seen them, while the defense has improved, the offense has, has regressed a little bit from the early portion of the season. Yeah, not showing the same explosive big play yeah, potential, but well, the Seminoles that's, that's getting the thing, right? better results as uh, you know, from as a, from a team standpoint than just wearing down and having nothing in the second halves, which plagued them over the first month of the season. I think teams have realized, right? You get more film on a on a team, you, you have a better understanding of who the, who their weapons are, you have a better understanding of what the offense wants to do, and so when you have an offensive line that's not very good, when you have a team that's shown that they're not overly buttoned up. Um, you want to make them go methodically down the field. So you're seeing teams back up a little bit, say, hey, we're not going to give up the the explosive play. We're going to prevent that. We're going to force Florida State to go efficiently and methodically down the field. Let's see if they make a mistake. Let's see if their offensive line has a brain fart, which it does routinely, and and backs them up in a second and long or third and long situation. And that's really how teams have approached it. And since then, 
that offense efficiency wise has has really tailed off. One thing I do have to give Florida State credit for, they've been more judicious with the football, only turning it over six times in their last six games. Four of those six games, they didn't turn the ball over a single time. Four turnovers coming against Clemson, but Clemson a cut above. The one thing, though, Payne, you're taking shots at the offensive line. All the reading I did, they're making Darius Washington sound like he's the second coming of Willie Rolfe and John Ogden all rolled into one on the offensive line. They have found themselves, uh, it appears, a competent tackle. Um, so, so that's somewhat positive. He has been better and no doubt the offensive line has improved over last season drastically. But when we talked in the off season, it was going from being horrific, the worst power five offensive line in football to just being below average. And that's what they've accomplished so far. Yeah, to, the, to their credit, uh, two of their offensive linemen for Florida State, and I hadn't realized this, graded by Pro Football Focus, two of the worst in all of college football out of about 240 potential players. They had two guys on the FSU O-line in the 230s. Not exactly a ringing endorsement for what we've grown to expect football-wise in Tallahassee. Last question on this game, and when you look at recent numbers, Miami, last 32 games they've played, 22-10 and 10 to the under, I think speaks to some of the offensive inefficiency. Florida State this season, talking about their offense taking a step back, has now played five straight games under the total. What have you seen in the market as far as uh, money movement here? I know on screen we've seen a little bit of under money and money towards the underdog, consistent with the folks that you talk to as well. That's what I've seen so far, yep, dog and under. From the ACC to the Pac-12, we go for the fifth and final game on this college football podcast. Utah finds themselves three and a half point road favorites in the Pacific Northwest, taking on the Washington Huskies. Total in this game, 47 and a half at Fox Bet. And when we look at this particular game, Utah has really gotten things rolling since their early season loss to the USC Trojans. Washington fresh into this game off of a bye week. These two teams played twice last season, and it was Utah mustering a grand total of 10 points, dropping a 21-7 decision in Salt Lake City early in the season, following that up with a 10-3 loss in the conference championship. Utah failing to eclipse 200 yards of total offense in that title game, albeit without starting quarterback Tyler Huntley. Chris Peterson, extra time to prepare. Kyle Whittingham has had his team buttoned up. Arguably two of the best coaches in the entire league going head-to-head. Payne, I guess we can start with that Washington offense. Jacob Eason, we saw him perform against Oregon. Wasn't enough to get them the win. Utah's secondary has shown some vulnerabilities when they stepped up in class against USC. But Utah, from a defensive standpoint over the last month, has been downright impossible to move the football against. Just ask the likes of Cal, Oregon State, and Arizona State. (sighs) Yes. I say that with a caveat, obviously, <laughs> meant tongue-in-cheek. Not exactly college football offensive powerhouses. Uh, yes. You know, this matchup is interesting, right? It's it, it's good on good in the trenches. Um, so, obviously, something's going to have to give. You look at Washington's O-line, again, one of the better ones in the entire country in terms of pass protection and moving people around in the trenches on the ground. Washington, 52% of their runs of grade successful. That's ninth best in the country. Utah's defense, stout up front. Um, they're actually holding rushing attacks to a 33% success rate, eighth best in the country. So whoever kind of wins that battle over the 60-minute sample size, I think goes a long way to kind of determining the, the winner of this game. Um, when I look at Utah, right, back-to-back games against a third-string quarterback, for Cal and Jaden Daniels, I think this is probably a, a step up in class for Utah's defense. You know, 
Um, I know we've kind of projected Washington to be down a touch this season, and they have three losses, and the win total under is already cashed. But when I look at Jacob Eason, he's been good enough, right, across the board with passing, 14th in success rate, 17th in explosive passing. Um, To me, the toughest test Washington's offense has faced so far this season was against Oregon's defense, right? And you look at that game, well, really banged up at receiver, Washington's offense churned out a 48% success rate. That's 7% better than the national average. They were 0.8 yards per play better than the national average as well. And I think probably the bye week has was definitely at the right time. Probably should have happened earlier in the season. I know Chris Peterson kind of joked about that. Washington and Old Miss were the only teams to play eight straight weeks. So let's see if that helps the health of the receiving core. I know Aaron Fuller, Chico McClatcher, They've been back at practice. Let's see if they play. Peterson's kind of said they're getting close. I don't know if that was a hint or not, but we'll see. Because if they both play, they could present some of the issues that you alluded to. That's um, Utah's secondary has been faced with when they step up in class. Now, I know, obviously, even when they're all healthy, it's not USC's uh, group of receivers that really torched the Utah secondary. But they are nice receivers. Uh, The key to this game, though, Washington on third down, they just have to be better. 94th and third down success rate. Uh, They have to be better when they get into scoring territory. They're only 58 in points per trip inside the 40. So those two things will probably determine this game. But again, we want to monitor those two receivers for Washington because they would be huge getbacks, especially in this matchup, Todd. When I look at Jacob Easton's numbers so far this season, Payne, he's only been technically pressured on 49 dropbacks. Uh, He's performed exceptionally well when he isn't under pressure, but under pressure, we've seen a few kinks there. Do you think Utah, a team that doesn't blitz a ton, tries to bring pressure, or do you think they just go about, hey, look, we're going to attack with our front four, so we're stout against the run, and make Easton show that he can beat us? This is exactly what we talked about when we broke down the Oregon game two weeks ago about Easton's deficiencies when he's pressured, and no doubt he's been a completely different quarterback um, I don't know what Utah is going to elect to do. To me, they're probably not going to change their identity, which is have a great front four, not be overly exotic, don't allow big plays. That's one thing that they've done a really good job at negating explosive plays. And it's, it's basically the style of play that they want to do on defense. So I, I maybe you send a blitz or two. Um, one thing that we do know, though, as you alluded to, only, what is it, 49 pressures this season? That's the one thing where... As I mentioned, good on good, not just running the ball and stopping the run, but the Huskies have been fantastic in pass protection. One of the best in the entire country in protecting Jacob Eason. So if you are going to send pressure, you better hope it gets home because if not, I think that opens some things up for Eason in the pass game, especially if those receivers are back this week. Yeah, one guy that I would keep an eye on who's been uh, inconspicuously absent in some of Washington's game plans is Hunter Bryan. I think he'll have an opportunity if Utah goes uh, to try and throw against their nickel corner. So I'm very curious to see if that plays a role in the way that uh, Washington elects to go about things on the offensive side. Other side of the ball, we, you mentioned it, Washington's dropped off defensively. We've seen the Huskies allow 150-plus yards on the ground in four straight games, middle of the pack in total pass defense, uh, a far cry from where they've been with NFL caliber, def- caliber defensive backs. The Utes, well, it's no surprise to anybody. They want to establish the ground game. They want to give Zach Moss the opportunity to hit that big play, opening things up in the passing attack. The numbers don't wow you, but from an efficiency standpoint, there are very few teams as balanced as what Washington is going to encounter from Utah and the Andy Ludwig offense? Yes. I think the first thing we do need to discuss, though, is Tyler Huntley's health. 
Um, he has For been sure. dealing with a calf strain that's limited him. Kyle Whittingham said something in the postgame presser against Cal that really caught my attention. And, and this is why reading and listening is, is really important because you can find a nugget or two that really provides some value in my mind. And I think that's, you know, a lot of the difference between certain caliber of betters. We can all read the same thing. Um, it's what you take from it. And the one thing that just really stood out to me is, is Kyle Whittingham said, Coach Ludwig did an outstanding job of tailoring the offense to the state of Tyler Huntley's physical wellness. So the point here is... Well, hold on one second. So it's a lot of what we do at the Bet the Board (laughs) podcast where I have to tailor the content to your mental wellness. I just wanted to get that out there. There you go. Absolute psychopath over here. Um, Hey, as long as you can look at yourself in the mirror pane, get up and go about your business on a day-to-day basis, none of us are here to judge you. The the point of this is I, I think it's obviously confirmed that... Huntley has an issue, right? It's confirmed that it's it's bothering him and limiting him to the point where, you know, the offense has been restructured a little bit to deal with some of these physical limitations right now. And so that would make me a little bit nervous here. I think in terms of the matchup, you hit on this perfectly. Utah always wants to be the more physical team at the point of contact, right? They want to be able to run the ball at Zach Moss. Um, and you look on the season, Utah's had over 50% of their runs great successful. That's 14th in the country. Um, and we know Washington plays this 4-2-5 style of defense that plays with one less linebacker, one more defensive back, which makes them a little undersized. And it shows. The Huskies are 94th in the country in rushing success rate defense. When you remove sack yardage, Washington's allowed a fraction less than five yards per rush attempt. When you look at stuff rate, Washington's 103rd in the country. So you would think Utah's probably going to be able to move the ball a little bit on the ground. Let's see if Chris Peterson makes an adjustment defensively during the bye, right? Knowing that Huntley is potentially a little banged up, uh, maybe he commits another guy to the box. What's interesting though, Todd, and we both watched this game, um, we lost the under. A lot of professional betters got their hearts ripped out with Washington plus three, but against the very best offensive line, Probably in the country, certainly the one that, you know, the best that Washington's defense has faced so far this season in Oregon, the Ducks running backs were held to a 39% success rate, right? Despite that massive advantage up front for Oregon, the Ducks were held below the national average in yards per play. They trailed by double digits going into the fourth quarter. So it didn't seem to be that big of an issue where the Huskies just couldn't deal with it, right? Um when I look at Utah's offense, very balanced, as you alluded to, very consistent. The metrics look great. You look at who Utah's faced on defense so far. Average rank, 63rd in efficiency. So they faced a below average schedule um, of opposing defenses. Um, the prior two games, which we'll continue to talk about, Arizona State and Cal, if you remove them, average opponent rank, of the defenses that Utah's faced, 77th in efficiency. And my feeling here, Todd, Arizona State and Cal, because of their offensive limitations, right? And Cal being on their third string quarterback um, and Jaden Daniels going like four for 18 or whatever he was in that game. The offensive production was so bad uh, from the opposing team that it allowed Utah's offense to kind of wear down on the opposing defense, right? So I'm not sure like, the versions of Arizona State's defense and Cal's defense that look so great in the metrics, both top 30 and overall defensive efficiency, 
were playing to that level at all the last two weeks. Yeah, it's an interesting game on a number of different fronts because typically when you think about Utah going on the road, they play buttoned up. They don't beat themselves. They go relatively conservative on offense and find no need to open up their game plan unless absolutely necessary. Of course, we saw them get into a bit of a track meet against USC, and clearly Kyle Whittingham's team isn't built to play that brand of football. The diminutive defensive backs were put on an island, and as you mentioned, Washington doesn't have the same caliber of receivers, but they do have athletes and a little bit of size that might be able to explain Utah. Uh, last point on this game, we and, look at the side. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Payne. No, no and, jump in there. And to your point, you made a good one there that Utah increased its pace. When you watched the Washington-Oregon game, that pace looked pretty, looked much higher than we initially thought, at least from the onset, right? Oh, Oregon, uh, I'll t- I mean, they came out and they established tempo right off the bat. You kind of knew after watching two series there that our total first half <laughs> under a 24 uh, wasn't going to be long for this world, barring a turnover or two in the red zone. And then you see stupid personal fouls and fourth down conversions, and you knew that one was going in a circular file with about six minutes to go in the Yeah, half. so that'll be interesting to see if, if either of these offenses kind of do something a little bit out of character and go with tempo here. I just I, I thought that was an interesting point you made, and I didn't want it to be glossed over and moved on. All good. I always appreciate that. And when we look at the uh, side and total, we've obviously seen some movement through a key number of three. The total has held pretty steady in that 47 to 48 range, depending on where you shop. Uh, what do you make of the number movement, and what have you seen there? So... <laughs> Interesting, right? Because I think we kind of have differing point of views on this game a little bit. And certainly Utah has everything in the world to play for. And now there's not much to play for for Washington, right? The line open to, we have seen sharp money on Utah. But let's try to figure out the intent of that. And I'm not sure we know that. Quite yet, because I can tell you, as soon as it got to four, there was certainly a, a different school of thought from others. So there's a little bit of a battle going on with the side. I'm intrigued to see where it ultimately closes. It looks like potentially three and a half might be the right number. We'll see. I'm not sure where it goes, but I think there's there's just a lot of differing viewpoints. If you like Utah, you're going to say, hey, they're going to be able to establish the run. If you like Washington, you're going to be able to say, hey, they did a really good job stopping the run against Oregon, and they've had two weeks to prepare. Um, you're going to say something to the effect of, like, Utah has usually great game plans with Kyle Whittingham, and he's able to outsmart and outscheme its opponents. Probably not going to be the case against Chris Peterson. I just think this was a really interesting matchup. I'm not as high on Utah, I don't think, as a lot of other people, especially after what I have seen. Um, and I'm not as down on Washington, despite the three losses. So... Very interesting game. I'm definitely going to be watching this one closely. But in terms of the number, I think you're looking at probably soft three and a half, three, unless there is another position taken, but clearly a battle going on here. And of course, the one difference, and it's always, it doesn't matter if professionals are bettering, what's the difference? They're usually getting the optimal number. So the ones that like Utah got better than the three, the ones that like Washington waited for above the three, right? And, and that's always the key here. Watch this game land right on a field goal like it often does. And we'll see both both sides of the equation get to the window with winning tickets on Utah laying the short points in Washington installed as a home underdog. For information throughout the course of the week, you, of course, can always follow Payne on Twitter at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You can follow me there. And the podcast at 
Bet the Board Pod. Five big games, if you want to call them that. Maybe three big games and two afterthoughts to try and round out the college football slate from our perspective. Not nearly as attractive as a couple of undefeated showdowns we'll have on the docket for you next week. But as we always do, still one order of business. And our best bet comes to you courtesy of Fox Bet, where the biggest name in sports is now the hottest name in sports betting and one of the fastest growing sports betting apps out there. Whatever sports you like, Fox Bet has you covered. You can download the app to your smartphone from anywhere and place real money wagers on dozens of sports and events with the easy to use app now available in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Fox Bet, make the call, download the app today. Payne, last weekend we backed a team that couldn't move the football in Michigan State. Uh, They are officially dead to me, although you're not supposed to hold grudges in this business. What team will we be backing this weekend to get us to the window? You talk so poorly about uh, Michigan State there. I was thinking about going back to the well. Fortunately for you, they're on a bye. Yeah, thankfully. I looked over my notes this season, and I'm sure our listeners don't care. 0-4 0-4 when I've bet on Michigan State this season. 0-3 when I've bet against Penn State. Little to say that's my college football season in a nutshell for two teams that if I just didn't handicap any of their games, I'd have a few more positions to go around. There you go. There you go. Glass half full guy. That's who I am. Best bet this week. Took some putting the heads together. Uh, don't love this card. But we came up with 357, the UNLV running Rebs in your backyard there. Uh, Eight and a half seems like more than a fair number. Uh, So we'll use UNLV plus eight and a half as the best bet if you are in Vegas. Uh, I would think that uh, getting to 10 cheaply is probably suggested and smart. I think that's a uh, worthwhile approach. There are some nine and a halfs out here in the desert. Some nines painted eight and a half as we talk about that good old dead zone. Uh, Let's see if the Rebels can show uh, a little perseverance and fortitude. Had San Diego State on the ropes last week and came up a field goal short at home. Team still talking about bowl eligibility. For that to happen, they'd have to win out. Schedule extremely manageable if they can get a win on the road in Fort Collins. And uh, Let's see how Colorado State handles prosperity. Outright winners last weekend against Fresno, catching 14. Two biggest games, arguably, from a rivalry standpoint on their schedule. Colorado not uh, included with home games against Air Force and then up against Wyoming in the border war. So let's hope for a little bit of flat spot. We know we're not giving up much at the head coaching position. And Colorado State officially without their leading running back who is dismissed from the team for violations that have not yet been disclosed. And then a receiver who we don't believe is overly valuable, but uh, is out as well, right? Nico Hall, is it? Come. Yeah, a couple of couple of catches this season. Yeah. I don't think he was going to feature too prominently in their game plan, but you worry about where this team's focus is and everything else when you have those kind of distractions. Certainly, just from a core number perspective, I'm looking at our numbers here and uh, more than some value on UNLV just based on the core numbers. So 357 UNLV, the number we'll use, eight and a half. And again, if you're out west... Uh, in the desert, some very, very uh, cheap buys to 10 are available there. So, Can you know, Bled? There you go. Get us, get us to the window, baby. Mountain West, the money's just as green. For Pain Insider, follow him on Twitter at Pain Insider. You can follow the podcast at Bet the Board Pod. I am Todd Furman. You can follow me there as well. Best of luck Saturday with all of your college football selections. And we'll see you at the window. Hey. 
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Bet the Board ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. But before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.